today, found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And the theme of today, really a question is, why should I become a member of a church? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your Son, Jesus, who has given us life and the forgiveness of sins. Um, judgment no more is upon us because of his death, burial, and resurrection, where we, your people, have received uh, by faith and repentance of our sins and our salvation all which has been accomplished by who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And we're thankful, Lord, for Christ Community Church, um, for the meetings that will even go on this week as, that are prepared, as many, many more, some, Lord, so new to Christianity, we're thankful for that. We, we pray that even as, as a people, we would be tender to that. And, uh, Lord, we would point them to the hope, which is really the central theme of the church, is, is the gospel. Lord, that's why you've left us here, um, to fulfill your mission that you gave your disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, literally, there is no plan B. And, and yet, Lord, in the daunting nature of that task, we, we accept it because... You told us you would never leave us nor forsake us, and no matter what comes our way, in suffering or abounding uh, well, you would always be with us. And so we give you thanks for that, and, and build, Lord, your people this morning through your word and through your Spirit's ministry in their lives. And we pray for these things in the name of Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, we have shared with the church what we're going to be going through is just different relationships that are seen in, in the church. This morning, as I mentioned, looking at why should I become a member of the church, but you'll recall, of course, the last two weeks, uh, starting with two weeks ago, with Pastor Alex preaching on the Word of God, that all of the church comes together as a community under the Word of God. Um, Pastor Bobby read from a text this morning that church in type was seen even in the Old Testament. God's people gathered together under the instruction of the, of the Word of God Scripture, of course, is our sole authority, and while we utilize creeds and confessions, and they are helpful, they are only helpful in and as much as they obey the authority um, of Scripture. We moved into last week uh, the means of grace which uh, God provides in the sacraments through the joy of baptism, and we, we baptized uh, four people last week, and we rejoiced collectively together, 
reliving, I know, my own baptism and, and taking joy as others were being united to us because that's basically the entrance into the church is baptism and then, of course, the Lord's Supper, the sustaining grace that God utilizes in our lives. And these really are the three main themes that Scripture uses as a means of grace to develop and to build God's people. It's falling under the instruction of the preaching of the word. It's entering into the life of the church once confession is made by baptism. And of course, moving through all of life's existence and the sharing and the bonding of communion with our Savior and with one another. We do it collectively as the Bible prescribes the Lord's Supper. There really is a joy of membership for those who belong to Jesus who have given themselves to be a part of a, of a local congregation. And I know this, okay, I'm looking around the room. As they say today, I'm speaking to my own tribe. I get that. But I also think it's very healthy for us to think about those things because of how eternally valuable it is. And for us to think about how God has built our lives, uh, my own life, this is all I've ever known, is to build my life with the local church being a centerpiece through, again, the instruction of the word and the enjoyment of the sacraments. Uh, I'm thankful that that's a part of my own family heritage and, and a heritage that we sought to create, uh, Val and I did for our own lives. And I know that's true for so many of you, again, as I'm, as I'm just gazing across the room. Um, you know, we gather together in a week-to-week -week way to, to seriously lose our lives into the grandest story that has ever been told. The story that has saved us. This redemptive story in simplicity as, as we move about to tell people who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And it's certainly true that Christ saved each of us individually. And yet it leads something to much, much more. It leads one to a community, to an assembly, to a congregation, to a church, which are really all synonymous terms in the Bible, where God's people gather together under the authority and the instruction of the word. We take part collectively as we hear the word of God preached to each of us, that we're a part of something that truly is greater. And it's greater because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what will take place for us, of course, for all eternity. There is a real sense of joy in membership and a thrill for people whose lives have been transformed like ours have 
uh, in saving us, in God saving us. And, and, and it doesn't matter if one has come and has, been, and, and has become a Christian through you know, much Christian learning, which, which sometimes happens and has happened in our own congregation, or if in very simplicity through many of that we have had over the last six months that have had little introduction into Christianity. It all matters. It's all important. And as Pastor Alex preached last week from 1 Corinthians 12, we are all members one of another. So as we begin to reflect about the church today and why I should become a member, I want us to start with um, really a question that is the biggest question um, for all of humanity, and that is, how can I be right with God? How can one be right with God? And I'm going to read from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer uh, 60, that answers this question, and the question is, how can I be right with God, or how are you right with God? Before I dip into this response that the Heidelberg Catechism gives it, I would say in the course of my lifetime, when a person's life gets confronted with the gospel, there's two very dangerous ends if one doesn't place too, true faith in Jesus. Um, most of that, I would say, throughout church history since the time of Acts chapter 2 has been riddled with a type of works-based righteousness. Even as I uh, talked with Pastor Brett this past week as he, he offered that a, a great deal, even from the inception of the church in Judaism in this works-based righteousness threatened the church, all throughout church history, all the other religions have, have picked up on, and Christianity to some degree, we know this is true, has been influenced by a works-based righteousness, and in so doing, has erred from the gospel and has become an apostate church. But I would also tell you this, in, in my lifetime, over the last 50 years, there is a real threat on one who could become right with God on easy believism. And easy believism, really, the way we understand it in our own culture, and again, I would say that's happened over the last, strongly the last 50 years, you know, comes from a sense of your own autonomy. Because even in Romans chapter 6, where Paul is being attacked on being antinomian, a message, the attack centered by the Judaizers is if you believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone, it's going to result in easy believism. And of course, we all know this, that that is not uh, the gospel. That is, that is not true. I think easy believism has been um, a cultural phenomenon in the church in America that centers on, again, as Pastor Brett and I were talking, on autonomy. And here's what easy believism says. 
It really takes the knowledge of the gospel and possible assent and says, you know, I'm okay. And because I'm okay, I really don't want any more authority in my life. And no matter what I do in my life, I'm a Christian. Okay? Now, it is true that when one genuinely places their faith in Jesus, nothing will ever, ever separate them from the life of God. And yet there is a work that's in salvation that compels us. Once again, I look around the room. I have always felt compelled to be a part of the church. And yes, I get I was raised in Christianity. And that's been, you know, the home that we've attempted to develop. But something greater, deeper within has compelled me to want to be connected. So that I meet with God's people together under the authority of Scripture. And we take joy in, of course, the baptisms in the Lord's Supper as we see the effect that the gospel has on so many people's lives. But I found this question, question 60, to be very helpful um, in terms of its answer. So, so please bear with me as I read this answer, because I would, I would dare say this is true for all of us. Okay, and, and, I, and I certainly would identify and think this is true of my own life. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward evil, nevertheless, without deserving at all, but out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart, and church, that's true. That's what the scripture teaches. Faith in Christ alone saves. Faith comes from the knowledge of the gospel. Right? This is why we declare the gospel to, to people. This is why we try to explain the gospel to people. And that gospel is three simple truths. That God is holy, that I am sinful, and I've come to the understanding that I cannot gain favor with God, I cannot be right with God because of my sinfulness, and that I cannot save myself. Those things are true. Those are a part of the knowledge of the gospel, as well as a part of the knowledge of the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. One needs the knowledge of the gospel to become right with God. It is necessary. Secondly, those three simple truths must be assented to in our minds. 
We must believe that what the Bible says about God's holiness, my sinfulness, and Christ alone saving is true according to what the Scripture says. What's most essential to genuine faith, though, is trust. I must trust in Christ alone to save me. No church can save me. No righteousness of my own can save me. I must trust in Christ alone. And this really, trusting in Christ alone, is the essential thing that makes one a member of the church. When the scripture is speaking about the church in the New Testament, there are two realms. There is the universal church, and there is the local church. I want to spend a little time with the universal church and hold your spot in Acts chapter 2 and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Scripture speaks of both the universal church and the local church. Once again, another helpful creed to this is the Nicene Creed. It gives us a helpful phrase that I'm going to break down here in just a few moments that is really derives from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Paul is describing about the church and what has taken place due to the salvation by grace through faith alone. This union that we have with God and that the wall of partition that separates people is united in the person of Jesus. There is, we know, only those who belong to Jesus and those, of course, who belong to Satan. Verse 19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now here's the phrase that comes from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now some of you are probably bracing up because I said the word Catholic. Just bear with me for just a few moments because it's really essential in its explanation. I think it's appropriate in describing the text that we just read. One holy Catholic apostolic church. What is meant by that in the Nicene Creed that is consistent to what the Bible teaches about the church universal? We believe, and the scripture teaches, there is but one church. That one church is found 
in Christ who has gained entrance into the household of God by faith alone in Christ alone. Despite the great number of local congregations and many denominations, we want to be clear about this, there is only one church. There is only one gospel that saves. Faith alone, in Christ alone, and Jesus is the head of the church because no one loves the church like Jesus because Jesus bought the church by dying for her. We believe, church, that the church is one. Secondly, we believe that church is holy. It's holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and it is also holy, H-O-L-Y. Those who have been united to Christ are wholly devoted to Jesus. We're devoted to Jesus because Jesus is one who has saved me from my sin. Jesus is the one who has saved me from the judgment that was due me for my sin. Jesus took my sin. Jesus took my judgment. Yes, the church is wholly devoted to Jesus because the church is H-O-L-Y, holy Jesus is. Let me give you a simple definition to the word holy. It means to be set apart from evil to God. When, when you were saved, you weren't just set apart from the evil of your sin and its judgment, but you were set apart to God, from evil to God. Christ, in saving us, sets us apart as the the text here describes it. We are the family of God. We are the household of God. This happens to us individually, but it also comes to us as a community. It leads us to a collective community. You know, one of the enjoying things that's happened recently with, our, with the salvation of so many over the last six months is they've really been connected to either family or close personal relationships and friendship. And when you read John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51, those loving relationships are a very fertile ground that God uses to save. He uses family. He uses close friendships. You see this in, in the closest of friendships with Philip and Nathaniel. And yet there's James and John who are brothers, who are physical brothers. There's Peter and Andrew who are physical brothers. We are saved individually, but we are saved to an assembly, a community. And that certainly is the universal church, because thirdly, it is a Catholic church in that it is universal. The church is worldwide. The church is across all times and across all places. It doesn't matter where you take the gospel to, it provides the hope of humanity in that culture. And it's been so since Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven and the Spirit came. It's been that way since Acts chapter 2, the text that we have read from. 
The church is Catholic in the sense that it is universal. It is worldwide. It is across all times and generations and places. The gospel this morning is fitting to the Christian or the individual that's in Iran or that's in Nepal or is in Russia as it is here. The church, of course, is Catholic. Thirdly, the church is apostolic. That is, as the text tells us here, it was built, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself, of course, is the cornerstone of the church. He is the the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. The church is apostolic in the sense it was built upon the teachings of the apostles And to become an apostle, two things had to take place that made it essential to their teaching. They had to visibly see Jesus resurrected, and they had to be commissioned by Jesus in his glorified body. Thus, they took the teachings that God had for them, many, of course, who were a part of the original um, eleven, to preach and build churches according from Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descended. Those individuals became the human authors to the New Testament. They authenticated what they had eyewitnessed and that they had heard from Jesus himself. They begin to bring the teaching that was given that makes up your 27 books of the New Testament. The church is also universal this way, before we go back to Acts chapter 2. Matter of fact, you can just flip your spot back to Acts chapter 2. The universal church is also militant, and it is triumphant. The church universal is militant, And it is triumphant. The church militant are all those who are alive on the earth right now who are engaged in spiritual warfare against sin and evil, against the world's philosophy to proclaim Christ alone saves. The church is militant. We're engaged with dealing with our own sinfulness and our own things that, are, that we may fall to in being evil. The militant church is suffering. It has since its inception. Persecution came quickly. You know, when the church was first established on the day of Pentecost, the disciples and those who saw Jesus ascended They were staying in Jerusalem because they fully expected he was going to return because he said he was going to return. It wasn't until God brought persecution of the church that the spread of the gospel began to take place and they began to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth as churches were established. The church is suffering then. The church suffers in spots on globe Right now, right now there are churches that are meeting whose lives are threatened 
And so the church universal is suffering. It's in tribulation. It's waiting for the return of its Savior, Jesus. We groan for that return. But dear friends, for those who have passed on, take courage in this. The church is triumphant. For those who have passed away have plunged themselves into the glory of heaven. And there's no death. There's no suffering. There's no battle against sin and evil for them. Those things are past. They're done. They are ruling and reigning with Christ in heaven. Awaiting, of course, as the church militant is for the return of Jesus. There is the church universal because scripture teach of it, teaches of it. Now back to Acts chapter 2 verse 42. There's also a church that's local. And it's important for people who claim to have relationship with Jesus to, though God has individually saved them, to connect themselves to a community called the church. I want you to think about this before we dive into verse 42. There's no individual in Scripture that God saved that didn't become connected to a church. I'm talking about that's how the Scripture speaks of it. They're all connected to a church. Therefore, the church assumes local participation. It assumes on it so that one whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus in sheer grace would invest them, their lives into the lives of others for the mission that God gave it, which was to take the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, and to teach those things that came from the apostolic teaching. Once again, another creed is very helpful for us, which was read from this morning, uh, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the communion of saints. We believe that. We believe in a worshipful community that worships God. This is why you should be a member of a local church, because all true churches that belong to Jesus fall into the pattern that's found here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. There is a sense in these four things that's given here um, that it's supracultural. That means churches do these things, and they've done so in the past, they're doing so presently across different parts of the globe, and the church local will do these things until Jesus returns. Because God has promised a sustainable witness on this earth until Christ comes to make everything new. They devoted themselves, number one, to the apostles' teaching, number two, to fellowship, Number three, to the breaking of bread. And number four, to prayer. Now, once again, as Pastor Alex mentioned last week, right, he went through the sacraments. We're not going to deal with that this morning. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you should listen to those sermons. They're helpful. And just as we're going to experience other things, this isn't 
all the church does, but they're really found in these four uh, principles. The apostles' teaching came from what Jesus taught the apostles during his earthly ministry, who become the authors of the New Testament, who spend time with Jesus, I want you to think about this, for three, three and a half years, and then for 40 days between Jesus' resurrection until his ascension, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus spent his time teaching the apostles from the scriptures, which would have been the 39 books that make up the Old Testament, how the scriptures were always about him. And you know how we know that they got it is when you read just casually through the book of Acts, the apostles go and take the Old Testament to show them in types and in prefigurements that they were only pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We believe in the apostles' teaching because the apostles' teaching tells us of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Secondly, of course, we believe in fellowship. That term fellowship certainly, you know, maybe can take on an odd meaning, you know, to each of us. We're, I mean, we're not talking about a chicken dinner, though it, nothing wrong with a chicken dinner. If you're having chicken and you want to invite me, I'll gladly eat it with you. But it also, fellowship can happen inside of a chicken dinner. It can happen inside of people sewing together. It can happen inside people doing any one of a number of things together that are a part of a local community. But the central thought that what's written here about fellowship, it comes from the Greek word koinonia, where we get the idea of working together. Fellowship means to participate. It means to share together. And this working together and this sharing together centers upon what Christ has done for you, he's done for me. We meet collectively to have a type of fellowship, but that fellowship in regards to a church centers on Jesus. Jesus is our fellowship. If we don't preach Christ, we are a miserable group of preachers. If we don't believe in Christ alone, then we're no longer a church. We want to have fellowship. We want to have fellowship because we want to share our lives with other believers. We want to participate in the mission that God has given us with other believers. And this, of course, you know logically it was how it's communicated. Churches are established in, in Acts. All of the epistles are written to churches. You read about the seven churches in, in, in Asia. Um, I mean, they're smaller society meetings called a local church. And of course, they were involved in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Thirdly, the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread 
is a phrase that's used in the New Testament to refer to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. It's a Holy Communion. It's a Eucharist. It's a giving of thanks. Sometimes in the early New Testament church, it was done within the framework, and that was the focus, the breaking of bread, of a larger meal. History records about God's people meeting together under a love feast. But the feature of the Lord's Supper in coming to the table as we do collectively together is accountability. My life is accountable to you as it is before God. Your life is accountable to God as it is as members of one of another. And this is where we really have to battle against our cultural mentality of rugged individualism. And I'm going to do what I want to. And self-autonomy. No, you've lost your rights as I have lost my rights. Jesus has bought me with a price. And he bought me as he's bought you with his own blood. My life's to be accountable, and it's clearly seen at the table. Lastly, there's prayers. And we can pray for any one of a number of things. We pray with, throughout our liturgy. There are, there are people that meet to pray. They're a part of our congregation. It's certainly speaking of prayer in general, but I want you to understand this. This group of people was praying for God's will. And sometimes our prayers isn't focused upon God's will. They were praying for the will of God. They were praying for boldness to preach the gospel because in all likelihood they were going to be killed. And guess what? Most of them were. Most of them were. We pray. We pray for God's will. We pray for God's will for our own lives. We pray God's will for our church. We pray for God's will to build his people in the truth. We pray for God's will that he would save. We pray for God's will that he would bring comfort when people are suffering. But we pray for God's will. And this has always been a part of a local church. Why should I become a member of a church? Because a Christian without a church is foreign to Scripture. And all of the attacks on church, we're pretty clear about this. There's no perfect New Testament church. Neither is ours. Boy, I pulled this from Paul Tripp. Please listen to this as he described a local church. The church is a community of unfinished people living in a broken world still in need of God's forgiving and transforming grace. You know, when we fall into sin, we have a tendency to want to isolate ourselves. Man, that goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve fell. What did they want to do? They ran, right, to hide from God. Each of us fall under that threat, right? Right? When we get involved in sin, maybe we get entrapped in sin. 
That's why you want to be a part of the community. That's why you want to come regularly. So, so there are trigger points that God uses in a spiritual nature, his means of grace, to, to right oneself along the way through the work of God. Because the church, I repeat this, is a community of unfinished people living in a broken world and still in need of God's forgiving and transforming grace. We are being transformed from glory of entering into the household of God to final glory of being with the one who has saved us. Why should I become a member of the church? Because the New Testament assumes that all Christians will share in the life of a church to strive together, to serve our Savior, to love one another, to live in unity, that we will, we will make every endeavor to do so, to be right with God and to be right with each other. It's essential. For the sake of Jesus Christ and the mission of the gospel, and you're probably wondering, does Kevin think there are Christians who aren't a part of the church? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't think it's the norm. I think a Christian who is genuinely a Christian who refused to join a church is starving themselves. Because they're not getting the means of grace of God's design. Their lives are impoverished according to truth. A Christian may be a Christian that's not a part of the church. They are given to wild imaginations, controversies, conspiracy theories. They chase weird things in the Bible. They don't keep you on mission. Why? Because we're not supposed to live isolated from one another. We're to do this thing together, not because I'm prescribing it, but because Jesus told us to. But guess what? You don't have to starve yourself. You don't have to impoverish your life. We get to renew our minds every time we meet collectively together under the word of God. We get to renew our minds and we get to come to the table. And as we do in the confession and we do in the table, God is telling me, Kev, turn away from your sin. Turn away from your sin. Though your conscience convicts you, know that your perfect Savior has saved you. Build your life through the renewing of your mind. Build your wife, your life through the corporate gathering under the word, through the joy of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We're thankful that because of you, Lord God, we are here. You have made us and you have made us new. 
in your son Jesus, you in your divine providence has brought each of us to this stage in our lives. And, and Lord, you are conforming us to fit together so that we would proclaim the gospel of Jesus in our own community. Lord, for each of us, there is remaining sin. For each of us, there is this dealing of sin and evil in our own lives that's going to go on until we die. Yet let us take hope because of the gospel you have saved us. When you look at us, you see us as holy, as belonging to your Son. You see our righteousness as coming to us from who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And Lord, for whomever is here that doesn't know Christ, we pray you would save them, even in this hour. We pray for these things and we ask for these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.